It was the early 90s and a South African serial killer was on the loose. On a rampage of rape and murder, he sent a Johannesburg suburb of women running for cover in blood-curdling terror. In a deadly game of cat and mouse, investigative journalist Janine Lazarus was used by the police as a decoy to trap the Norwood serial killer. If we're to believe that journalists should shape the news, not make it, Lazarus broke just about every rule in newsroom ethics as she became increasingly obsessed with Gwibis Galdenais. In True Crime Memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer, she gives a personal account of the fascinating pre-digital era of the 1990s newsroom ethics and questionable police procedures. To Catch a Serial Killer is the official companion podcast series, a jackpot production featuring Janine Lazarus, Jacaranda FM News editor Marius van der Velt, as well as various guest contributors. The human fascination with serial killers and the reasons why they do what they do stretches back decades. Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and our very own subject on which this series is largely based, the Norwood serial killer, Gwibis Galdenais. Over the five episodes so far, we've delved into Gwibis, the people who got close and personal with him, those who were there to tell the story, the mistakes they and we made, and then the things that they and we got right. Now, Janine, this is our final episode, so I thought, let's get personal. Okay. Set the scene for us, and we've spoken in, the, in some of the previous episodes around the time that it was in South Africa, late 1992, uh, obviously tumultuous politically, we, um, Mandela was free, but we haven't had elections yet, but you, what time was it for you? It was, a, as you said, an extremely volatile time politically. I was competing against the more elite journalists who were covering the politics of the day. And being a crime reporter, while it was, you know, a good beat, it was drowned out by the much more important stories. The Boy Patong massacre, everybody voting yes in the referendum, Kadesa, etc. Even Nelson Mandela and Winnie Madikizela's divorce. Um, So it happened during that very pivotal time in South Africa's birth. But where were you personally as, like, Janine? Okay, so so Janine was just chasing crime story after crime story. Starting out trying to make a way. Oh yeah, no, no. I'd been a crime reporter for years already. I'd uh, and I was a very good crime reporter. So you felt you've had like a bit of experience. Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, I was in my late late twenties. I'd been on the crime desk for years already, probably from the age of about twenty four. No, even 23. I'd had a good five, six years of the crime beat. I was literally bouncing around in the early 90s from bomb blast to bomb blast, scraping pieces of brain matter off my shoe. I was holding the hands of people who, widows whose husbands had died, you know, with a single gunshot. I was bouncing to family murders. I was covering domestic arguments that would end in terrible violence. I was covering a paedophile, Gert van Rooyen. I was covering the most sensational murder trials. So I was not immune to covering crime. In fact, I'd almost developed a kind of bulletproof um, around my heart. As much as I wore a bulletproof when I covered violence in the townships or in the Cape Flats, I had, I had experienced crime. And yet, you haven't written a book about any of those. You've written a book about a specific, a specific case in your career. Well, this was personal because the Nord Killer was cutting a swathe or carving a, way, a swathe of terror through my neighborhood, 
through the very neighborhood in which I lived and loved Marius. He raped and killed women, two of which looked exact, well, not exactly like me, but dark girls, long dark hair, um, medium height, medium build. They lived within a two and a half kilometer radius of my flat. So the story obviously became way too personal. In fact, I missed the first two rapes. And my editor at the time, the late and wonderful Dave Hazelhurst, was extremely angry because I was head of the crime desk. How could I have missed rapes happening within my own neighborhood when I was head of crime? My excuse was that they were tucked away inside, you know, daily newspapers. I worked for a weekend paper because they were overtaken by the, the politics of the day. So I was dispatched in no uncertain terms by Hazy, my editor, to go and kind of put the pieces together. So I went through the regular police line of inquiries. It brought me into Brixton Murder and Robbery Squad. I worked very closely with that notorious, those notorious detectives. And they, they knew where I lived. And they said, well, since you live in the area, can we use your flat as a surveillance point? They did. They camped in my flat with their weapons and drank all my wine, all my beer, frightened my two cats who lived under the bed for the weeks that they were there. They had a key to my apartment. They would come in and leave at odd hours of the night. I would hear their radios crackling. Um, they were loud. They were obnoxious. But they were in my flat, and at one particular time, they decided to use me to lure the Nord Killer. The Nord Killer, I was told off the record right at the start of the investigation, that they assumed he was a policeman because the women, his rapes ultimately morphed into murder, as they do when you're a serial killer. The woman was shot with a police-issue firearm. They found cartridges at some of the scenes. So they assumed that he was a cop, and they assumed that he was living in the Norwood single police barracks, and that's directly behind my block of flats. So there I was, one dark, it wasn't a stormy night. No stormy. It was a dark dark summer night, walking down Iris Road, because the murders happened on the corner of Grant Avenue and Iris Road for the main part. I walked down my road where my flat was, past the Norwood police station and the barracks, past the gym where I used to teach hectic step and high-impact aerobics classes. And I felt fear. And uh, the police were watching. They were watching on the roof of my apartment building. And, of course, the Norwood killer never came out because I wouldn't be sitting here and talking to you today, had he. So I failed three times, Marius. I failed as a reporter because I missed the story of the rapes. I failed as a bait because I didn't lure him in. And I failed again because he jumped ship when the police were getting too close to him and he moved to Benoni and I wasn't in on his arrest. So the editor again came down on me like a ton ton of bricks and said, you failed, you're a lousy crime reporter, go and cover his trial. So I felt as much as I had... I had front page after front page after front page, which Morris was a huge feat back in the day. No, I can imagine. You know, I was, no, I was, no. I was competing against politics, yes. but as much as I had that, I missed on those three opportunities. So I really, my tail was in between my legs. So let's just go back a little bit when the police kind of asked you to do these things, which did you feel it was wrong? Did you feel it was about the story? Like what was, like what was going through your mind at the time? Because, I mean, it's easy to look at it now and say what they did 
I mean, we talk about political reporters being too close to politicians these days. But I mean, that's kind of the same thing, being that close to the police. And, you know, they, like you say, you broke a lot of rules. What was your thinking at the time? I knew that I shouldn't cross the line and become part of the story. That, as you know, as an experienced journalist yourself, is supposed to be a a credo in good journalism. But this was my story, and I knew that I was... I was having my Clarice Starling moment. This was going to make my career as a reporter. So you were so, happy? Oh, absolutely! To be used. I was. I was. Of course, I was happy to be used. I mean, at the end of the day, who gets an opportunity to be used as a decoy to lure a serial killer? Who has the opportunity to be able to interview a serial killer face to face? Who knew my name, by the way, and who I interviewed just after he was given five death sentences? This is a—it's a journalist dream. It's a—it's a crime story of the decade. It made my career as a crime reporter. And then. From the police's side, how do you reflect on on their conduct and the way they they treated you? Well, there's now? There's, there's two ways of of slicing this. You know, there's two sides of the coin. First of all, should my editor have put me in the line of fire? Should he have agreed to it? There are many editors today. In fact, we we interviewed one of the editors in the earlier podcast who said he would have never allowed his his reporters in his newsroom to take that kind of chance. It's just too dangerous. Mm. I don't know if I agree with him that yesteryear was more dangerous than it is today. You know, when I was a reporter, believe me, it was dangerous. So questionable from the editor's perspective, but even more questionable from the police. How can the police use a journalist as a decoy? Mm. But then questionable on my part too, because how could I have got so involved in the story? But you've got to understand that as a young journalist, and I wasn't that young, I was in my late 20s, the story, Marius, was my everything. I was defined by my story. I'm still defined by my career, which is probably problematic. But I'm, I'm, you know, that's a different podcast series. (laughs) Exactly. But I'm defined by my story at the expense of my personal life at the expense of personal relationships. Everything was about the story. And we could not come back to the newsroom without the story. Our reputations were on the line. And now you do media training. I do. And now you kind of touch on media ethics and and on all of those kind of things. But 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 more than that, how How do you? (laughs) More than that. How can you? Well, you know, first of all, let me tell you as a media trainer, I don't suffer fools gladly. And I've dealt with serial killers and presidents of the countries, of countries. So when I deal with multinational CEOs or C-suite executives and they're arrogant, I cut them to size very, very quickly. So journalism has taught me that. I tell my, my delegates that they need to be very mindful of what they say, because once you put something out there, it's out there and there's no action replay. I tell them about unethical journalists. I wouldn't like to pay, paint the entire of my profession, because once a journalist, always a journalist. You know, I don't tell them that there are journalists who are all unethical, but there are those amongst us, and they need to be very careful. What I do tell them, Marius, is that journalists are not their friends, even if they pretend to be their, their friends. So they need to be very careful what they say and what they don't say. In fact, here's something that may make you smile. I ask them to open their mouths. I then tell them they're on the record. Then I tell them to close their mouths and then I tell them they're off the record. (laughs) And I always tell them this, that loose lips sink ships. So, you know what? The media is is like a prostitute. We're never going to go away. You've got to learn to rock with us and roll with us. You've just got to be careful. Let's change tack a little bit. Just your personal memories of Quibus, when you think of him. Yeah. 
What comes up first? Well, I'm not going to tell you about, you know, the end of the book because otherwise no, people won't buy no, it. You know, that's a spoiler. He was not the monster of my dreams. I mean, I, I was haunted by him because I lived in the neighborhood and because I could have become a victim. I, you know, I slept with a baseball bat ne- next to my bed. I don't know if I thought I was going to smash him in the face or something, but one does these things. Um, when I finally met him, I was smuggled downstairs to his holding cell after he'd been given five death sentences. All I saw was a pathetic man, a, a man of reasonably small stature. He's a little bit taller than I am, with dark hair, cut kind of policeman style. It looked like somebody had put a toilet lid on his head and cut his hair like that. He had fairly big brown eyes that were very docile, very, he had tears in his eyes. He was clutching a tattered Bible. And he seemed, I guess it's, you know, textbook, Hollywood blockbuster, he seemed remorseful. He said he was so alone, his parents were holidaying in Cape Town and they hadn't even come to see him. And despite his violence, despite the fact that he took innocent lives in the most, you know, depraved way possible, I've always been, and I've been a crime reporter for most of my life, I've always looked for the light in somebody. And I needed to find it, you know, even though rationally I knew that there couldn't be light in this individual. I felt sorry for him. He is so ordinary. He's almost beyond ordinary. He's awkwardly ordinary. He, you would, he wouldn't, he's not the kind of guy that you would even give a second glance if he walked past you in the street. Do you still fear him? I don't know. Not at all. I don't think I feared him then. Really? No. No. I didn't fear him. But you had the baseball bat next to your bed. So yeah, there I mean, must be some he, yeah, I mean, there was there was an element of fear, but the but the adrenaline rush um, overtook that by miles. Was I fearful? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Marius, I took different ways home. I wouldn't jump across the road to the local supermarket. I wouldn't walk down Grant Avenue where I lived and loved and met dates and had wine and coffee and would walk up my road to my flat after midnight. You know, nor would. It was a trendy bohemian suburb. A lot of single women and men lived there. It was rocking. Great sushi restaurants, coffee bars. Everybody shut their doors. Norwood became like a ghost town. So, of course, my life, my life changed like everybody else's. I mean, all the single women moved out en masse. They moved in with their boyfriends, with their, their parents. They would come home early in the morning just to feed their cats and water their plants. But Norwood became like a ghost town. So, to to say I wasn't scared would be lying, but was I scared of him when I interviewed him? No, and I'm still not. Do you, in a sense, feel you owe him a sense of gratitude for what he... Because obviously there is a lot that he did that impacted your life negatively, and that's obvious, but he also made your career... We're here because of him... Have you ever thought about it like that? You know what? It's a it's it's a really cool question from a from an experienced uh, journal, and I, I I've never never been asked that question. Do I thank him? I don't know if I thank him, but his story made my career. So I don't know if I'm grateful. Perhaps I'm grudgingly grateful. Perhaps I, I can give him a grudging nod because he made my career. But I tell you who I'm more grateful to, uh, to is every time I covered a story, I I came unstuck. Murders. There were some dreadful stories that I covered as a journalist. And the Nord killer has somehow dogged me for the last 30 years, 27 years. 
And I would go see an, a clinical psychologist to help put Humpty Dumpty together again. So I'm certainly more grateful to him than I am to the killer. But from a journalistic perspective, yeah, uh, that story made my career. So one more question. And the last question I'm going to ask you is like, what has this all taught you? What was the lesson that you took away from, from this incredibly important chapter in your life? <sighs> I'm not sure. I've, I've been taught a lesson, Marius. I'm still... You know, I don't do things in half measures. I'm either switched on or I'm switched off and I'm, I'm too much. And I do exactly the same in, in my role as a media consultant and a media advisor. What has it taught me? It's been more of a catharsis than anything else. I don't know if there's a lesson to be learned, but I've come full circle. And there's a kind of relief. I've kind of faced the demon in his eyes and I've reduced his size. He's become just a story. A really good story, but one that I can neatly pack away, tie the box up with a ribbon and put it in my drawer. So there's a sense of relief. There is a, a reasonable amount of catharsis. But I mean, I, I still chase work. You know, it's, it's my personality. You've been listening to To Catch a Serial Killer, the official companion podcast series to Janine Lazarus' true crime memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer. For easy access to future episodes, subscribe via your favorite podcast app or via jackpod.co.za.